Hello, hello. Welcome to the end of the week, depending on when you actually listen to this show. I'm going to assume you're listening to it on Friday or Saturday. Uh, so it's The Nose, our weekly cultural roundtable. Uh, I think kind of the centerpiece of the show today is going to be a conversation about Roadrunner. Roadrunner, a documentary film examining the life uh, uh, and more <laughs> of Anthony Bourdain. Uh, kind of a food celebrity with no obvious equal or parallel that I can think of anyway. Uh, it examines a man who seems intensely private and intensely public all at once. And that's not the only contradiction that's there to behold. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to have some kind of a, a run up. You know, we're going to talk about something very unappetizing. That is the bare feet of tech uh, entrepreneurs, uh, CEOs and, and people like that. I mean, like really famous ones uh, and not just tech entrepreneurs either. Uh, but uh, if you're young and rich and famous or relatively young and rich and famous, apparently one of the perquisites of all that is to walk around with no shoes on in situations where most people would have them on. We'll also talk about a Washington Post columnist who got himself in trouble by, by doing a column about foods that he didn't like, including a very dismissive and some would say a little bit more than dismissive uh, take on Indian food. We'll also talk about the beginning of the pumpkin spice season, a set of goalposts that get moved closer and closer uh, not to, to, the, to the heart of summer when this is arguably an autumnal delight for those who actually look at it that way. Um, and here to talk about all of that are Rebecca Castellani, the co-founder of the Quiet, of Quiet Corner Communications and a freelance writer. Mercy Quay is founder and principal consultant for the Narrative Project. Uh, I heard them conferring before. They've been together on the show once before. So uh, so this will be the second time, and, and they'll even improve their rapport, which is already, I'm sure, quite wonderful. So, um, yes, we'll begin with this story. Uh, it was like one that I sort of noticed in the publication Inc. INC, uh, Musk Branson, and a brief disgusting history of the Barefoot CEO. The whole idea being that there's like a thing. Uh, it's a thing where, you know, there are these kind of quote unquote candid, candid photos of Barefoot CEOs that show up. Uh, sometimes they have their feet propped up uh, on a desk or a table or something to call even more attention to it. And these include Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Cuban, Richard Branson, Chris, Hoss Chris Hotchkiss, uh, Elon Musk, uh, and more. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so, Rebecca, you're going to get us started since uh, I, I know exactly what you think about all this, or at least what your immediate reaction to it is. Uh, although I think what we want to try to figure out is what's going on here? Is there, can we extract some semiotic meaning from all this? Oh, God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like a power play and also like the consent issue of it doesn't sit well with me. Just having your raw feet <laughs> out in public, just really, it's horrific, but also not surprising to me at all that the CEOs you've named are going around just having their raw feet up in the air. Like, save it for OnlyFans. I don't want to see that in an office environment. <laughs> oh, I'm glad we got the OnlyFans topic into the mix. I had to so do it. it in there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I should also say there are other instances. In fact, I, an unnamed source, a never-to-be-named source, uh, told me that John Skipper, during his time as the skipper uh, of ESPN, would walk around barefoot all, all the time, too. So this it's not just the, the tech people. So I don't know, Mercy, what's going on here? Why can these dudes put their shoes on? Or, or, or should we all just join them uh, in barefootedness? Well, so, I, you know, when I was younger, um, I remember working at Town Green Special Services District in New Haven, and I came across this young woman um, who was barefoot, and I just romanticized 
being barefoot in an office like that's the place where I want to work I want to work somewhere where it's 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 okay to be barefoot you're bringing your full self to work that for me does not translate here <laughs> you know I, I'm getting like these these images and in the piece that we um read gave us the the actual images that we can consume um the images give me you know I pulled myself up by the bootstraps double ellipsis perhaps triple ellipsis then I sold the boots. That's what these images give me, right? Yeah. Like, I'm I'm cool. I'm hip. I'm into capitalism, right? And <laughs> I'm not a regular capitalist. I'm a cool capitalist. I'm a cool capitalist, right? Yeah, there's something something about that. Yeah, I, I think I, I see where you're you're heading there. I mean, they don't they're not barefoot on Shark Tank, you know. But on Shark Tank, there's sort of a, a sense of accountability. And Mercy, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I'm, re, I'm I'm interpreting you correctly, but there's sort of a sense of nobody can hold me accountable anymore. I'm Elon Musk. I'm Mark Cuban. I get to decide whether shoes go on feet or not. Oh, absolutely. Right. And it, it sort of, I mean, it reminds me of there, there have been times in the past where I've sat in meetings um, with, uh, you know, publishers of, of publications for an editorial board session or something, I, you know, publication not to be named. The publisher takes a fingernail clipper out and starts no. clipping his fingernails. <laughs> Right. And to me, that is a laughing in the face of propriety because I get to decide what proper is. Right. And, you know, once you've reached that stage and you get to decide, there's a lot of power to be um, wielded in a um, a, a naked foot. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's a really, yeah, power flossing in particular, I object to. You know, I just feel like, please don't exhibit that to me. Um, So. Yeah. Don't do it in the office. Right. And so, Rebecca, I think I think we're sort of getting good, close to uh, to semiotics here. Also, I think there's also <laughs> the, the kind of sense that that I, I don't have to observe the division between private behavior, uh, behavior that would be conducted uh, either as part of grooming or as part of relaxing. Uh, I don't have to observe that dichotomy anymore between that and work uh, because I, I'm above all that, right? I'm, I'm, I've transcended those kinds of distinctions. Yeah, I mean, I think if this was a company-wide policy, you know, they had sand instead of carpet and everyone could be barefoot, <laughs> some kind of quirky tech thing, I could be fine with that. But if it seems to be happening mostly with the people that are in charge, like it very much feels, I don't know, violating in some ways. Like you've got to look at my feet and you don't, if this makes you uncomfortable, that's too bad because I'm in charge and I can behave however I want since I'm at the top. And I, if that doesn't extend to the whole office, if everyone's not walking around barefoot or at least has the option to, but it's really just something that these titans of industry are doing, it feels gross. And also, right. and feet are gross. Go ahead, Mercy. <laughs> and then the and then the other pieces, right? What what sort of culture do you have to establish on the front end to say that everyone has this uh, the, the same opportunity to go barefoot, right? Yeah. Um, if if we if we were talking about female CEOs, right, uh, would it be as um, uh, I'll even say right off putting? Would it be as off putting if a female CEO walked around barefoot? Um, and for me, double checking my bias on this, I don't think so. But that's just a me thing. And I'm you know starting starting up a company on my own. I'm sort of thinking. If I was male and I was walking around barefoot, as I sometimes do in my office, right, how imposing would mm. that be? You know, what is the what is the conversation around consent that we uh, we should be having in those moments? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, women in bare feet set up a whole different set of expectations. Um, 
and, you know, and like guys have a very specific reaction to that too. There are people, you know, there are sites I think where you pay money to see stuff like that. So, uh, exactly. so anyway, uh, that's a good place to probably stop. Anyway, we have to speed we have to speed date through these topics, so we have plenty of time for Mr. Bourdain. So yes, next topic: uh, Gene Weingarten, former uh, editor of the Sunday Magazine at the Miami Herald, which I think is relevant to what we're going to talk about. Uh, maybe in need uh, of a good idea for a column. I've been there, uh, but uh, he wrote one called "You Can't Make Me Eat These Foods." Uh, it was sort of his attempt of a takedown uh, of all kinds of things. Old Bay seasoning, balsamic vinegar, hazelnuts, anchovies, blue cheese, uh, all kinds of things. Uh, but he may have crossed a line writing about uh, Indian food. Uh, he says nice things about uh, the uh, Indian about Indian culture and its many contributions to knowledge and and taste. But then talks about um, the food and says that he it's all curry. Uh, he seems to feel like curry is, in addition to that, all one thing, uh, and probably really crossed the line when he said something about uh, the curry would knock a buzzard off a meat wagon. Um, so, and there, there was a response uh, from lots of quarters. Uh, probably the most important one was uh, an essay in the same newspaper from Padma Lakshmi, uh, who was uh, who was a uh, food show host. Nice through line through line from her. To, uh, to Bourdain, but also rebuttals from other people as well, including uh, her, I think, ex-husband, um, Salman Rushdie. So, so they found something else that they could finally agree on. They both don't like Gene Langer. Um, so, um, so, you know, I don't know how many interesting, I mean, I, I don't know. I think all three of us, I'm guessing all three of us would agree that this is an obnoxious paragraph or section of this column. But I think, Mercy, there is maybe another interesting question there. Like, are you allowed to not like the food of a culture mm-hmm. right now, a culture that represents a minority culture in the country that you live in? You know, I mean, are, are is there a way in which somebody could say, I don't like X kind of food and, and not be kicking a tripwire? Yeah, so I grappled with that exact question, right? Um, is it is it is it okay to not like a, a particular food from a particular ethnicity? Um, and I agonized over this paragraph. I reread, you know, the the um, accolades he gave uh, the Indian self uh, subcontinent at the beginning of the paragraph, and then sort of decided where did he go wrong and how. Um, and I realized that it actually had nothing to do with the composition of the uh, of the paragraph or the content of the paragraph. It's that you put Indian food alongside hazelnut, Old Bay, and balsamic vinegar, right? And I think it feels um, to me like a throwaway line in a slapstick comedy that just mm-hmm. didn't need to be there. Um, and the piece would have stood on its own. Now... If this, you know, could it serve in a different purpose as a tweet? Um, uh, You know, I don't like Indian food, but I like Indian food just about as much as I like French food. Then there for me is a a different sort of context that comes in. Um, But he puts it alongside of uh, of of foods that I think people would would generally right have laughable uh, arguments about whether they agree on it and the argument around Indian foods, it would tend to fall in line with, now you're talking about an entire culture, whether or not you agree with the food of a culture. And that's, that's I think, where the, the slip up was here. Yeah. Um, Rebecca, yeah, where do you fall on this? 
Yeah, I think that's super well said. I mean, everything else was a very specific sort of single ingredient that, you know, you either take umbrage with or you think balsamic. Who's got an issue with balsamic? That's insane. (laughs) But to then go and say all Indian food and Indian food is so diverse. There's so many different types of curry, like to just paint with such a broad brush and say that all Indian food is, you know, something a buzzard wouldn't eat off of a meat truck was just, you know, definitely verging into insensitive racism. Yeah, I, I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm gonna. Well, I'm gonna offer up a, an interpretation of this uh, that is based a little bit on what I know of Weingarten's history. So Weingarten used to be an editor, and what he was famous for doing as an editor was hiring a humorist that very few people had ever heard of by that time. He was doing some pieces for I think Rodale Publications. Uh, I knew about him because I was writing humor at the time, and it was obvious that he, he had a very specific talent. His name was Dave Barry, and and I think one of the things that happened with Weingarten was as an editor, he watched Dave Barry, who kind of specializes in in and traffics in a kind of so- sophomoric, dismissive uh, humor. Uh, he watched Dave Barry become a multimillionaire. <laughs> And, and in a way that newspaper columnists just don't and have his own TV show, uh, you know, in which somebody else played Dave and uh, it was Harry Anderson, I think. And and I, I think, you know, a lot of that is the reason Weingarten is an, a writer now, not an editor and a reason why he's writing a specific way a lot of the time. I mean, the thing about Dave Barry is uh, whether you like Dave Barry or not, and, and I certainly enjoyed a lot of his writing, particularly in the, the early stages. He's like a pitcher with 103 mile an hour fastball. I mean, he just blows it by you, you know, and and by the time you're done laughing, you might think, oh, that was actually kind of objectionable because he said, you know, that (laughs) the Chinese food tastes like boogers or something, you know, but somehow or other he would do it in a way where he'd get it by you before you realized it was objectionable. And Weingarten, he doesn't have that kind of fastball. He can't do that. It just sort of hangs in the air and gets hit back at him. Uh, And I, I do... I, this could be my my gloss on this, but I do think he kind of still wants to be Dave Barry, uh, and he's not. You know, he he can't really get away with that stuff uh, anywhere near as well. Uh, all right, now we are all, all going to get in trouble with our opinions about a specific kind of food. Although I just have to say about pumpkin spice and pumpkin spice latte in connection with the nose, that all of my feelings about pumpkin spice are now subordinate to my yearly act of making fun of nose panelist Tracy Wufastenberg, <laughs> who, who really likes pumpkin spice and is is not willing to live a closeted life the way she probably should about pumpkin spice. I mean, if, if I liked it, I wouldn't go around telling people about it. Uh, but anyway, we, let's talk about the first part of the problem, Mercy, which if it's a problem, which is the goalposts keep getting moved further and further away from the beginning of autumn uh, and, and, and pumpkin-y things. <laughs> <laughs> and more and more into 97-degree, very humid summer days. Uh, and I assume that's because they think they can make some money selling it at this time of year. Oh, absolutely. And I, 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 the problem in that is uh, the pumpkin spice latte would premiere each year around the pumpkin harvest. And for me, that was fine. Pumpkins are really only in style for about 45 days, right? That's because you harvest pumpkins for in a particular period during fall. Um the latte being debuted or rather premiering this year in August to me feels like a reminder that this had no roots in any uh, natural flavoring <laughs> to begin with. <laughs> right. That's a quick reminder for me. Um, but in addition to that, I think that um, just to just to offer myself up to the world and come out publicly as a um, pumpkin spice 
uh, bigot. I will say <laughs> that I think that you are, if you if you are uh, a, an open fan, um, a connoisseur of all things pumpkin spice, um, you are saying to the world that you live a particular lifestyle, right? Um, basic <laughs> as it may be, you like you like flannels, and maybe you shop at Lululemon's. Definitely um, shop I, at Lululemon. It, you you have a pay, you have three or so pairs of hunter boots, and maybe a few pairs of Uggs, um, and you take like you know really cute. Uh, I'll 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 call it. Um, What's uh, white girl Instagram? White uh, woman's from, Instagram. White Bo woman's Burnham. Instagram. Yeah. Bo Burnham, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, photos with the pumpkins replacing right your breasts in the photos, right? So I understand. <laughs> I understand you if you come out as um, uh, a pumpkin spice la uh, latte lover. I just don't understand why you would want to come out as a pumpkin spice latte lover. That was very well done. I feel like I'm going to get a lot of emails about it, but I. It, it, <laughs> You're welcome, Kyle. It was probably from Tracy. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's she's touching on a whole lot of different things here, uh, Rebecca. But at the heart of it is sort of an XX chromosome, XY chromosome. Although I have been into Sane Coffee Shop in Hartford and watched a two male cops walk in in uniform and one of the male cops get a pumpkin spice latte or some kind of, you know, which is like such a okay. long way from the guy in the Simpsons with the donuts and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> but mostly there is, I don't know, guy, guy pumpkin spice fan is probably a little bit of an anomaly, right? I feel like they're going to have to come up with like a gendered pumpkin spice now, like the equivalent of like men's body wash. We're going to need Pumpkin spice for men. <laughs> the capitalists are on it. The barefoot CEOs are turning around and bringing you the male pumpkin spice latte. I completely with mercy on this. Like I just have an innate distrust of when something seasonal or fun becomes like someone's identity for that season. Like it's pumpkin spice latte season and I'm measuring out my seasons by the advent of this warm beverage. And it's not even the season yet. And it just, it's like they're on CVS candy aisle timing where they're three months ahead of the actual holidays. <laughs> and it's just, is so like transparently consumerist at that point that it, that alone makes me nervous. But then that there's this whole like echelon of ladies that are living for the pumpkin spice. It just makes me want to run for the hills and never come back. Uh, I'm being sent, sent a piece from uh, McSweeney's that actually does kick this tripwire pumpkin spice now for men. This is a humor piece of McSweeney's. Uh, but uh, I also want to just sort of say as an update, I was struggling to think about this when we were talking about the Barefoot uh, CEOs, but I couldn't put the whole thing together in my head. But there is, you know, this site called WikiFeet uh, where where people vote on each other's feet and stuff like that. It, you, you, people's feet get put up, pictures of feet get put up there. And... Uh, and in fact, Elon Musk's feet went up on WikiFeet. I mean, not with necessarily his knowledge and consent, and got a two point seven out of five, which is I don't think as he deserves. Yeah, not a very good, uh, not a very good rating. Well, I don't know if and there's I any. Think that they, yeah, go ahead. The, the marketing for the 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 male uh, uh, market for uh, PSLs would be pumpkin old spice latte. I'm pretty oh, sure that that's yeah. how, done. Right? Yeah. Genius. Wow, where's our check? <laughs> Uh, your check is going to be used to buy flowers for Tracy Wu Fastenberg, which I'm going to have to do after this conversation. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have a lot of smoothing over of 
<laughs> ruffled Wu Fastenberg uh, feathers, I can guarantee you. Uh, all right. So we'll take a break there. I want to leave a, a bunch of time to talk about the Bourdain documentary just because I really I'm, I'm fascinated by it. And I, I hope our panelists are, too, and I, to say nothing of our listeners. So let's take a break and we'll come back. It's that time of year. Pumpkin spice is here. I can't wait to drink. Mm-mm. I can't wait to drink. Mm-mm. I go to Starbucks twice a day to get a pumpkin spice latte. They may say it's crazy, mm-hmm. but I say it's okay. Mm-hmm. So get to brewing like what that barista's doing. It's like my. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org slash WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. The arc uh, of Anthony Bourdain uh, is a remarkable one. Uh, began mostly with a book called Kitchen, Kitchen Confidential. It turned into so many different things, including a series of yet more books, uh, a series of TV shows that were really unlike any other show about food that I've ever ever seen anyway. I'm not a big expert on all this, uh, but um, certainly not a stand and stir show, as he called them. Uh, no Gina Dela, Gia De Laurentiis there. Uh, and so Roadrunner, we should also say he took his life. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, and now Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. That's the whole title, Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain, has been released. It's a documentary. Um, It's currently available as a $20 rental on iTunes, Amazon, places like that. Uh, At some point, it's going to move to HBO Max if you want to wait for that, and will even air on CNN at some point, uh, directed by Morgan Neville, who's directed uh, movies like 20 Feet from Stardom, Best Best of Enemies, and Won't You Be My Neighbor, all three of which are actually really, really good documentaries. So we're going to find out whether this one is another really good documentary. Uh, Rebecca Castellani is with us, co-founder of Quiet Corner Communications and a freelance writer, Mercy Quay, founder and principal consultant for the Narrative Project. So maybe that's the first question, first thing that we should sort of decide or or talk about among ourselves is just whether on balance this is a, a good movie, a good documentary. Mercy, why don't you get us started? Yeah, sure. I I think this was phenomenal. I think it was incredibly well done um, and something that I thought gave me a sense of um, 
it, it satisfied my nostalgia for Anthony Bourdain um, because I did watch um, the show on Netflix. Um, uh, Words unknown. What was the name of it? It's slipping me at the moment. Um, but parts unknown. Parts unknown. Thank you. Um, it it was sort of filmed in the way that they filmed Parts Unknown, two people across the table from each other, glasses of wine and water between them, mm-hmm. um, really diving into whatever the topic was. Um, often the topic was was food, right? And it was a food show, but often the topic wasn't. It was politics. It was you know, stories of their lives. And so it mirrored the way that um, the cinematic direction of the, the show was filmed and I appreciated that it, it satisfied my nostalgia. Um, the other pieces that I think, uh, struck me, um, was that what were a few lines that, you know, were were said throughout, you know, they talked about Anthony as a a storyteller. He wasn't at at a particular point. He wasn't a foodie anymore. He wasn't a chef. He was a storyteller. Um, and that the show wasn't about food. It was learning about how to be a better person. So I've got a lot more to say on this, uh, but to answer the question of whether this was a good documentary or not, I think it was phenomenally done. I think if you have any um, affinity for Anthony Bourdain, um, for Parts Unknown, for Kitchen Confidential, if you followed his work in any way remotely, you would find something to love in this. Right. Uh, And uh, how about you, Rebecca? Can I just give us your, your overall sense of this? Yeah, I completely agree with everything Mercy said, and I'd even take it a step further and say, even if you don't really have a connection to Anthony Bourdain, there's value in this documentary. It gives you some mm-hmm. heartbreaking insight into the pitfalls of having a very active, creative mind, and it really does feel like one of those tales that's in turns genuinely tragic, but also completely inspiring. It feels like a roadmap for how to live a more interesting life, whilst also acknowledging this man was really, really suffering and was unable to communicate that suffering and how you know, the whole time I just kept thinking to myself, if only, if only, if only he'd had the courage to seek more mental health treatment or be more open about the struggles he was going through. And he was a pretty open man across the board, but just taking it to that next level. So he could have saved himself from his tragic demise. It just, it's, I think a really, really fascinating insight into, you know, the pitfalls of fame and also the pitfalls of having a a very restless brain. Right. I, I think, you know, it's interesting because Bourdain's whole career is about taking things to the next level and the next level and the next level. And, and you know, one idea for a series gives way to another idea for mm. a, a series and different books lead to other books. But uh, on, on the personal side, he's maybe not doing the same kind of work, although I want to talk more about it. But before that, let's hear Bourdain's voice. This is from the documentary Roadrunner. Uh, this tells you a little bit about the germination uh, of that first book, Kitchen Confidential. My wife, Karen, who was a book publisher, was in the living room breastfeeding the baby. I printed out the email and I went, Karen, you have to read this. Am I allowed to curse? Does anybody curse when they talk on this? I read it and I just went, that is awesome. I was like, okay, I'm going to make him an offer. Basically, he can't refuse. (laughs) He came back and then we sat down. I said... So Joel tells me, you know, you have a lot of stories. And he goes, I have so many stories. I'm so excited to tell them. He said, I already have a title for it. I said, what's the title? And he said, Kitchen Confidential. And I said, I love it. Let's do it. He's like, will you write this book? Yes. Can you write it in eight months? you damn right, I will. You know, you should talk to Tony's agent, Tim Witherspoon. I don't think Tony was afraid of failure. 
And that was hardwired. He was the kind of person who thought, well, you know what the f let's just try it and see how it turns out. Anthony Bourdain, who's worked as a chef for 28 years, reveals some surprising and disturbing trade secrets in a new book called Kitchen Confidential. So that was really kind of the beginning of the story. I, as we talk about this movie, one thing that I, I struck me, Mercy, is how much footage of Bourdain exists. Now, obviously, he made all these different series, and there's that kind of footage. But it, it almost appears as though when he wasn't being paid to be in front of a camera, he relaxed by being in front of a camera. Uh, I mean, there's almost as much, quote unquote, private footage available to say nothing about this cloud of witnesses, all of whom have very interesting things to, to say about him. But you know, th this is a guy who in some ways could come across as introverted, but also maybe in some ways came most alive when somebody was pointing a camera at, at him. I don't know if you had any thoughts along those lines. Yeah, I mean, right along those lines, I think... Uh, for starters, the images that we have of Anthony Bourdain, where it sort of looks like, you know, some, some of them I, I, I understand or took to be people behind a camera for sure. But some of them was like, I'm not sure this could be you in front of a camera on a tripod here. And if you are a person experiencing severe uh, loneliness, right, the way that you might feel feel like you don't have to be alone in that solitude is to prop up the camera and be in front of it. Um, some of some of the clips uh, reminded me in a way of um, a, a, another documentary we talked about on the nose uh, a while back, um, Marianne and Leonard, Words of Love, mm -hmm. sort of all of this organic um, uh, uh, video that we had of Leonard Cohen at the time. Um, just sort of being living mundane, a mundane life in some ways. Um, and so that was really interesting to me. And it's sort of, you know, how do you find company when you are so severely alone and you want to be at times, it seemed as though, right. Anthony wanted to be alone and propping up that camera for me is what achieved that. I also think, you know, I appreciated the way they talked about his suicide. Um, mm. they only used the word committed once and I have been pretty public about my objection to the word committed, right? I've been sort of slowly transitioning to suffered a suicide, mm. um, particularly because, you know, in his story, I think um, it's indicative of what people go through when they are suffering from depression and battling um, with, with feeling alone and those thoughts of self-harm or even as he discussed, harming others, mm. right? You are suffering a suicide in, in, in those uh, last and final moments. Um, and so I really appreciated the way that they discussed the suicide and how, um, you know, even in discussing what seemed as though it was a gradual deterioration, um, they, they gave him a lot of grace. And I really appreciated that. Yeah, I mean, you know, all the way through, of course, we know how this story ends. Uh, it does end with yep. his suicide in, in 2018. And it kind of hangs over. Uh, he, by the way, hanged himself, uh, I believe, in a hotel room uh, in, in somewhere in the general vicinity of Alsace-Lorraine. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, that's... I think as we're watching this whole thing, there's obviously kind of an autumnal quality that hangs over it, Rebecca. And, and you can't help but look at him and kind of mine every appearance that he makes for. Because, I mean, in a way, you, you know, this is a guy who has 
so much to live for and is getting a lot of enjoyment, at least superficially, out of life. He has great friends who clearly like him a lot. He has a dark side, uh, but people put up with it because they like his light side so much. Uh, he has success compounding success, uh, and, and the success involves quite a bit of sort of paid hedonism. He gets to go really interesting places and eat really great food uh, and goes some pretty funky places and, and eats food that Gene Weingarten would be afraid to, <laughs> to even look at. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think he's never really going to answer the question to us. So, uh, I mean, if this documentary uh, takes as good a stab as, at it as you're ever going to get. But, I mean, who is this other person who does this horrible thing to himself at the end, you know? Well, I think that's what makes it so valuable is that you can be famous, you can be successful, you can have a wonderful family and wonderful friends. You know, all of his relationships with his exes were seemed very positive and still be terribly depressed. And I think that that's really important for a lot of people see, to see that think, you know, depression is just a choice to be sad. I mean, this man had everything going for him. He was intelligent. He was good looking. He had a very successful career. He was talented and he still couldn't figure out what it meant to be happy. I mean, the scene on the boat where he says, uh, I think I'm happy right now was the thing that really just got me that he, here this man is, mm. I don't know how old he was when he passed away, but he still didn't know what mm. happiness really felt like for himself. He was still trying to figure that out. And this is a man that's lived and traveled. And I think sometimes we romanticize celebrity and we romanticize people that get to live these fantastic adventurous lives, but that doesn't make you any less lonely if you're, you know, have a propensity for depression. And I think that this was what made the documentary so valuable. And at times to me, it almost felt like his obituary that he'd somehow authored himself. I know he didn't have any mm -hmm. hand in this, but the specter of his suicide hangs over the whole documentary, but also the joy and the passion. And that's kind of how I walked away from this was it really did feel sort of like an obituary that he self-authored. You know, mercy for me. There's one moment, and I, I was already primed to watch for it. I, I knew that it was it was in there. Uh, but there's a moment where he's talking to, of all people, Iggy Pop. Iggy Pop, one of the rock stars that he kind of re re revered, and he says something like, "What thrills you now? What still thrills you?" And, and Iggy Pop pauses, and then he says, "Well, this is going to sound." you know, kind of boring or basic or something like that. But really, you know, when somebody really loves me and I love them, you know, uh, that's what really thrills me, mm. just the completeness of that. And then they cut back. This could be uh, an editing decision by the filmmaker, uh, but it looks pretty natural, at least in the context. They cut back to, to Bourdain's face and it, it really, there's a tremendous amount of loss playing across his Thank face you. as though, uh, you know, oh, <laughs> I mean, Stephen Metcalf at Slate Culture Gabfest said in that moment, you know, that everything he has done, all of the success, all of the exploration, all of this is a substitute for what Iggy Pop just described. And he's realizing in that moment how inadequate a substitute uh, it is. That could be way too much imputation, Mercy, but there's something there in that moment, I think. I think there is. And I think moments like the one you described, moments like the one Rebecca describes, for me, creates this fullness of a picture of Anthony Bourdain. It's mm. it's sort of you have this deep sadness in 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 regular moments in these these points of realization. We're also talking about an addict here, yeah. right? We're talking about a person who you know an addict is always an addict. It, it all depends on what the substance is, and I think we're talking about a person who went from you know heroin use to um, getting really good at, in in the kitchen as a chef to being addicted to life, which is, I think, a better habit. Um, mm. But the, the moments that we see him sort of 
reckon with his sadness. Um, for me, I think those are chilling to to observe over the screen. Um, I, I physically got chills because, it, mm-hmm. you know, knowing how this story ends, it's sort of you're watching this with with the cliff notes in your pocket. And it's it's a hard thing to observe. Um, I think that there's this other point where he says uh, he's sitting across from I forget who it is. Um, and they're and it looks like maybe they're on a vineyard and. He goes, uh, the, the gentleman says to him, you know, you've got a lot of great karma coming your way. And Anthony Bourdain goes into this piece about, you know, afterlife and how could you believe that? If there's anything after this, it can't be any better than this, right? And it, it you get a sense of a person who is so filled with the joy of life in that moment. Um, and and it's incredibly sad to kind of be on this on this trip of whiplash throughout the entire piece, seeing moments of true happiness and joy, and then moments of other sadness and grief. Yeah, I think whiplash is the perfect word, and it it really does describe so many of the contradictions that exist inside this man. Uh, I wanted to play another clip of a time that he came uh, here to Hartford, where I am sitting right now. Uh, spoke on stage with Alice Waters, Duff Goldman, and some uh, rambling, mumbling, incompetent moderator. Why do people give a shit about chefs? Yeah. Why? And it's a good question. Yeah. For better or worse, I mean, and I say this as somebody who's milking this celebrity chef for everything I can get, um, <laughs> very happily, yeah. um, it's the new pornography. Yeah. Okay? It's, it's people seeing things on TV, mm. watching people make things on TV that they're not going to be doing themselves anytime soon, just like porn. vicarious. Let me just stay with you for a second, because in the first book, Kitchen Confidential, or the first uh, cooking book, um, you, I think you use the phrase naked contempt to express your whole attitude towards a lot of the things that were on food televisions. Mm -hmm. And yet you're kind of caught up now in in the television phenomenon. Yeah, irony sucks. So, uh, you know, there's no point in pointing out any kind of paradox to Bourdain because he already knew it. Uh, and I just want to quickly say a, a thing about that night. It's a story I think I, I'm not sure I've ever publicly told the whole thing. But um, so Bourdain, you know, well, part of his whole thing was also, and you kind of hear it, you hear that kind of bro contingent out in the audience, when, even when the title uh, of the book is mentioned. Those are all very male voices because he had this kind of bad boy Keith Richards thing that, that he was doing all the time, you know. And 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 so on stage with him was Alice Waters, whom he had sort of dissed a little bit in the past, and then based on stuff that happened that night, would go on to diss even more profoundly uh, in print in his book, one of his the book that followed this one, and in interviews too. But what was really interesting about that was. So it was a weird night, and you know everybody had their little fan groups. I mean, f- cooking and food and food shows had turned into more and more like sports, you know, or like the WWE. Or just people just like got really excited about you know whoever they really liked a lot. And so the Bourdain people and the Duff, Duff Goldman is kind of he was the ace of cakes and he d- does baking shows. You know, they weren't into it too much with Alice Waters, who could get a little bit preachy about organic food and and French cuisine and stuff like that. And so. And I, I am violating a kind of seal of the uh, of the confessional here. But in the green room at intermission, Alice Waters started to cry because she thought the audience didn't like her. Um, 
And she wasn't entirely wrong about that. Two-thirds of the audience didn't like her. Her her people loved her. Um, but what was interesting was that Bourdain came right over. I think he knelt down in front of the chair she was sitting in, you know, and, and Goldman came over too and, and just kind of helped put her back together and just reassured her and everything's okay, you know, and, and you know, you've got your people who love you. And it was, you know, I mean, this guy was a, a real pro and he wanted always wanted things to go well. You could really tell that. But, you know, <laughs> I don't know, about three months later, he's like tearing into her over something she said on that very stage. And to me, Mercy, that's the interesting thing about this guy is that, you know, I mean, his there's always the, the you know, a kind of sneering, insouciant punk rock darkness to him. But then we like see this stuff with his daughter. We see, you know, I, I mean, I guess he's not the first person to have those two sides, but I don't think I've ever seen them so acutely present uh, in one person. Uh, something else to be, I mean, you mentioned acute, the entire span of his fame, right? Kitchen Confidential came out in his forties and he died at 61. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we're talking about a span of 20 years, a person going on a whirlwind of a lifelong experience condensed in 20 years. Right. To some degree, I, I liken that to the experience of a child star, Right. And how you I mean, look at uh, Zac Efron. Right. The the downfall of oh, he's doing all right now. But there was a period of time there where drug, sex and rock and roll really took over. I think that what happens when you are thrown into the spotlight and you haven't reckoned with some of your previous um, I'll say demons is you don't quite know how to reconcile those parts of your identity that that regular people have the privilege of doing so privately. I, I feel as though, yeah, I mean, first of all, that's a really good good point about the timing. And that included No Reservations, this, you know, these globe-trotting shows where he's just, as is pointed out several times in the movie, he's on the road 250 days out of 365, you know, and he's often traveling to really far-flung locations and eating all kinds of weird street food. Uh, and, I mean, yeah, this is was a, a lot compressed into a very short time. But, you know, Rebecca, I, I guess the other thing that I'm struck by, I, I, I don't know, I was, I almost have to watch this movie all over again and see if I can make more sense out of it. But it, it is maybe the dilemma of every artist. You know, he's, we should say, he had a marvelous ability to use words. Just even uh-huh. the scripts he wrote for himself, you know, stuff to say on those series uh, were just, just poetry. And there's a way in which I think every artist is saying, know me, know me. You know, here I am. Here's what I'm writing. Here's what I'm saying. Here's how I'm acting. Here's how I'm being. Know me. And also at the same time saying, you can never know me. You will never know me. And I think that this documentary in particular kind of grabs at that in an interesting way. Yeah, I mean, I think he tones that line between self-surrender and self-awareness and wanting to give every part of himself to the audience and the people around him, but also maintaining that sort of enigmatic, unknowable quality that every human being has. You know, you can surrender as much of yourself to the page as you want, but there's always going to be a portion of you that's unknowable. And I think rectifying those two sides was a challenge for him that he never quite succeeded in conquering. Okay, we're going to stop there. Although I will say that at the end of that night, I, you know, when you do these Connecticut Forum things, you spend about seven hours with the people total. Um, and, you know, he was kind of at the little after party for a few minutes, and I was looking at him, and he'd just been a consummate professional all day long and done everything that, that I could possibly have wanted him to do to make the whole thing work. And I was looking at him even then and thinking, Tomorrow, except for the two people on stage with him, the two other cooking people, Alice Waters and Duff Coleman, he will not remember a single person. (laughs) 
<laughs> that he met today. Yeah. This is just like a little phase, and he's going on to the next thing. Uh, and we and we don't know him either. Uh, all right, so we'll take a little break. Uh, we'll come back, and our panelists will make some recommendations. All right. We are back. Time to thank Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer, making this whole thing swim the way it's supposed to swim. Jonathan McPants is always, pretty much always, the uh, producer of episodes of The Nose, and that is the case today. Uh, Rebecca Castellani and Mercy Quay are with us. We're going to make some recommendations. Rebecca, why don't you uh, get us going here? So my first recommendation today is an alternative uh, for Old Bay, which took a real beating <laughs> in the piece we discussed. There is a wonderful company out of Portland, Connecticut, you, though you can order online, called Tony's Smoking Again. And this guy makes some of the most delicious spices and rubs you can get. And it's a local in-state business. My two personal spices of his, my favorites are one called Alexis Pegasus and one called Smoke You Up. And they're just, the brand is funny, but the spices are really unbeatable, affordable. So do yourself a favor and uh, check out Tony Smokin' again before the grilling season is over. And my second recommendation is something that I am certain I have endorsed on this show before, but I just have to endorse it again. And that is The Good Fight on CBS. It is just truly, in my opinion, one of the funniest, most searingly well-written commentaries on the current political climate out there. Uh, season five just finished airing and it had, you know, casual guest stars like Wanda Sykes and Mandy Patinkin in it. It's just absolutely fantastic acting, great writing. So if you're not watching The Good Fight, I don't know really what you're doing. Get on it. <laughs> right. That's a good blurb right there. Uh, all right. Mercy Quay, what are you going to uh, endorse for us? Okay, so um, starting with Andy Weir's latest book, Colin, you mentioned it last time I was on, picked it up, um, and it's fantastic. It's called Hail Mary. Uh, highly recommend. Um, author of The uh, Martian, and he, uh, Andy Weir brings over the same sort of whimsical writing to Hail Mary, or Project Hail Mary, rather. Um, then I'll also say that uh, season two of Star Trek's Lower Decks came out this week, um, which is a cartoon uh uh depiction of you know we know about you know captain kirk and all of the folks who ruled the uh star trek universe but who else is on this ship and <laughs> and how am i uh, just hearing of this this is great it's so good and, and I'm, I'm i'm actually excited for you because you just heard of it and there's two seasons to binge so enjoy um oh. it is on cbs all access which i think was just purchased by uh paramount plus so uh highly recommend that and then finally i'll say um, because I'm in Portland, not Connecticut, but Portland, Maine, I'll also uh, go ahead and recommend the um, Night Sky Festival in Acadia National Park. It, it is happening September 29th through October 3rd this year. Happens every year during the new moon in September. 
and uh, Acadia National Park is the darkest place on the eastern seaboard, so highly recommend the Night Sky Festival. All right. Uh, I'll, very quickly, we'll want to play some music at the end here, but uh, very quickly I'll, I will do some Anthony Bourdain-type uh, recommendations. Um, uh, Italian white wine is great, but people drink too much Pinot Grigio, uh, or, they, or they drink it too much or something. There's so many other kinds of wine. Uh, I'm going to recommend something called Gavi. Uh, it's a, there's less of it out there, and the, therefore you can control the quality. I will re- we'll, we'll recommend the labels Enrico Serafino and Macera. Um, you can get either one of them at the Wise Old Dog in West Hartford and lots of other places too. And it's like f- for 15 bucks, you can have like a really good bottle uh, of white wine and sit out on the deck and, and have a lot of fun. Um, and it's it's dry. The really good ones have a nice com- combination of dryness and fruitiness. I want to recommend Connecticut peaches, which are unusually good this year. I think the native peaches, buy a bunch of them at the farmer's market, find out, figure out how ripe they are, let them ripen a little bit more. Uh, they are amazing. They're really ripe when you can peel them just with your hand. You can just, you know, t- you can tug the skin loose. Uh, that's that's a great peach. And then also, don't be afraid to buy some corn on the cob. Strip the corn off. The, c- cook the corn, strip the corn off the cob, and make a cream of, of sweet corn soup. Just a little bit of cream, a little bit of broth, and you are done. Uh, yeah. And you can either use, maybe use an immersion blender to puree that up, uh, and it'll, it'll be just great. All right. Thanks to Rebecca. Thanks to Castellani. To Re- thanks to Castellani. <laughs> thanks to Rebecca, and thanks to Castellani as well, uh, the comedy team of Rebecca and Castellani. Also, Mercy Quay. Uh, the Rolling Stones, of course, lost Charlie Watts. Uh, we are going to close with a Miss You from Some oh. Girls Live in Texas 78. Excellent. 